right, please take out the full-page insert where you have the Jesus, Son of God, a graphic on top, forgiveness like none other. The text was read earlier, uh, but uh, you can see it there in, in front of you. Now, today marks what many have called the year of popularity in Jesus' ministry, approximately 26 A.D. The first year, his inaugural year, the beginning and setting course and, and calling his disciples. But it didn't take long for crowds to gather and, and for people uh, to be waiting for Jesus ahead of time. It got so crowded that it was difficult for Jesus and his disciples uh, to travel. A picture, if you will, almost like every day, crowds like Disneyland or, or crowds like Barrett-Jackson Auction or if you went to the uh, Phoenix Open. Huge crowds. It's hard to move. It's hard uh, to get around. Now, historians say, uh, based on just studying the the times and also a a historian that lived during the time of Christ, called his name was Josephus, is estimated about 4 million people, not just Jews, but everyone that was there in Israel, the population was about 4 million. Uh, Josephus says that the city of Jerusalem, which acreage-wise is limited, that during the festival times of the year, when people would travel all over to get there, that city would swell from 40,000 to 250,000 people. So it's relatively small geographical area. There's a lot of people that were living there in Jesus' day. Um, That year of popularity, it was not uncommon for Jesus to draw crowds of tens of thousands. That's a lot even by today's standards. Uh, For instance, uh, before the election, some of the rallies that that Donald Trump had were considered very successful as far as crowd numbers. You know what the crowd sizes were on average before the election for Donald Trump? About 5,800 people per event. Here's Jesus 2,000 years ago without media, without the Internet, without a PA system. And some of those events consistently, again, tens thousands of people. Uh, It's thought that during that year of popularity, Jesus was able to reach millions collectively, people coming in contact, hearing of him. It it truly was a year of popularity. And our text this morning is, is a text that's early on during that second year of Jesus' ministry. If you will now, uh, look at verse 17. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now, we know from Mark's gospel, it's a parallel gospel account, that Jesus is in Capernaum, which is northern Israel. It's not that far from the Sea of Galilee. Jesus made Capernaum his headquarters. And that particular day, he's in someone's home. Uh, More than likely, the owner of the home was not Jewish. I I say that because we know that uh, they removed tile from the roof. That would be a Greco-Roman-style home. Most Jews uh, did not construct homes that way. But Jesus is in someone's home, 
and he is teaching. Now, it almost reads in Luke's gospel that that the crowd was composed of Pharisees and teachers of the law who who were sitting, they have a front row seat in front of Jesus. But if you look at Mark's gospel, we realize, yes, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, these were people opposed to Jesus. They were there. But most of the crowd, uh, they were not Pharisees and teachers of the law. Most of the people there were common, everyday people, just like us, who were there to listen to Jesus. Now, there weren't tens of thousands, obviously, in that house. But it is jam-packed. It's filled beyond capacity. I picture the Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. It's funny, they would show up early, get front row of seats. The rest of it is standing room only. And there's people outside and inside that house as Jesus is teaching. Now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, these were the leaders in the church. They looked at Jesus and his popularity and it made them very suspicious. They did not trust Jesus, nor did they believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God. So it's just interesting. As Jesus became more popular, this, the, the, the amount of opponents also grew. And that's going to be our very first fill-in this morning. It is this. As Jesus' popularity grew, so also did his opposition. Just the way it is. It would grow stronger now for the next two years. Verse 17b uh, again. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So we're introduced to five individuals. They're, they're all friends. One of them is paralyzed. We're not sure the extent of his paralysis. Uh, Was it that he just couldn't move the the lower extremities? Was he completely paralyzed uh, to the point he could not even speak? I have a suspicion that was the case, complete paralysis. We don't know how he became paralyzed, but we do know that his friends cared for him greatly. They heard that Jesus the Messiah was close by in Capernaum. And and because they they loved their friend, they wanted the best for their friend, and they all believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They traveled. Again, we don't know how how far, but it would take some effort, wouldn't it, to carry a a, a friend who's paralyzed, who's lying on a board or a mat. So, So they find the house where Jesus is teaching. Crowds were outside the house and inside the house. They tried to get in. Right? Here's, here's our friend, you know, he's, on a, he's paralyzed, and they couldn't get in the front door. They don't give up. The, they find a stairwell to the, to the roof, which was pretty common, especially in the Greco-Roman homes. It'd be a flat roof, tile roof. And, and they, they struggle, but they're able to go up those stairs, carrying their friend all the way to the roof. Now, now imagine this. Um, you're on top of a roof, and you know that Jesus is down there somewhere, Again, it would take effort to try to figure it out, and they found just the right spot. Maybe they were listening through the tile, like this is it. So, so they remove tile, and probably with their belts, they lower 
their friend on the mat, straight down, and, 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 and picture yourself, Jesus, you're teaching, and all of a sudden, you know, you're brushing yourself off because of dust. And here's this man being lowered down right in front of you. I'm sure they were thinking, we made it. We made it. We, we, we have our friend. He's now right in front of Jesus. Now, healer, do your thing. We continue. Verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. There are several things worth noting here. First of all, the there, uh, when he saw their faith, that's plural. I said before that all of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah when he saw their faith. And that's a great thing. Uh, we, we, we see again, you know, the, the faith that, that uh, they had in Jesus, and they just had to get their friend to Jesus. And, and here, this is the second uh, fill-in. It is this. A true friend will do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus. A true friend will do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus. Now, as a, as a Christian, uh, you already believe in Jesus, but perhaps you're going through a difficult time. Perhaps you've wandered away from, from worship or whatever it might be. If you have true Christian friends, they're going to encourage you, no, come back. Come back to Christ. You need to hear Jesus. Or if you have a friend that's not a Christian, if you are truly a, a, a friend, do whatever it takes to get them to, to Jesus, to, to hear his word. So again, uh, Jesus looks at them and looks at the man when he saw their faith. And he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. So again, uh, the, the there, they, they all had faith. The second thing worth noting is that he calls this man friend. That tells us there was a relationship there. Nothing in the text suggests that Jesus knew him ahead of time, um, but Jesus does call him friend. Uh, that goes to the fact that he had faith in Jesus. God knows those, again, who have been called to believe and trust in him. Thirdly, the third thing worth noting is what Jesus says to him. Friend, your sins are forgiven. This makes me wonder if he was completely paralyzed, unable to speak. His four friends thought his greatest need was physical healing. This guy in his heart knew there, was other, there were other problems. Uh, he perhaps was feeling the guilt of things that he had done or shame. Sin many times can weight us down. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. The word forgiven, it's, it's an interesting word. In the original Greek, it's pronounced aphiomi, aphiomi. And the off is a preface, apo, which means away from, from. And himi is to take away. So, so literally, friend, your sins are taken away from you, or your sins are lifted up and carried away from you. It's very descriptive, isn't it? Uh, he was paralyzed, really, in, in two different ways. He was paralyzed physically, but in his soul, his, his sins were paralyzing him as well. And Jesus says, you are forgiven. All your sins have been taken away from you. Now, this tells me that Jesus was eager 
to forgive this man his sins. Jesus is eager to forgive this man his sins. And, and the same is true for us. Jesus is eager to announce to us that we are forgiven. And that's the, that's the third fill-in. Jesus is eager to forgive us our sins. Now, when I say this, that Jesus is eager to forgive a person's sins, I need to qualify it a little bit. That doesn't mean that Jesus went to those who were rejecting him, those who were uh, like the Pharisees, trying to find a mistake in him, and those who did not trust in him. He didn't go to them and say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus taught from Matthew 18 something that, that Martin Luther called the ministry of the keys. And basically, Jesus says in Matthew 18, uh, if somebody sins against you, go show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you win him over. If he doesn't listen, then you get others involved. Um, and we, we know that the, the Pharisees, again, harden in their heart. He doesn't go over to them and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. But he, he would be eager to do so. If there would be any inclination that they were a person sorry for their sins... Jesus is eager to announce, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, they're thinking these things, but Jesus says God can read their thoughts. Who is this guy? He's, he's blaspheming. Uh, blasphemy is when you mock God or you, you claim an attribute only God has, in the sense mocking God. So who do you think he is? He's forgiving sin, something only God can do. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Is that true? Are sin something only God can forgive? Uh, the Bible tells us in several places forgive each other. Does it not? Matthew 18, the ministry of the keys. Uh, right after that, uh, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? Remember Jesus' response? No, Peter, not seven times. Seventy times seven, right? Somebody sins against you and says they're sorry, you forgive them. So the Bible teaches us that we are to forgive each other our sins. So what do the Pharisees mean then? Who can forgive sins but God alone? How do we understand this? Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Um, if, if one of you, I'll just say Denny. If Denny came up here and in anger punched me, right? Um, he sinned against me. Uh, but what if, what if Jeanette came up here and spoke to you and said, Denny, I forgive you. For punching Pastor Marks. Would that make any sense? It would not make any sense, right? Because Denny sinned against me, not her. Um, however, God is a person, no matter what we do, if I sin against a fellow brother or sister or any person, my sin isn't just against them, it's against God. Jesus is the, the, the divine. He is God in the flesh. And there's nothing in the text to indicate that, that this paralytic man had sinned personally against Jesus as a man. 
No indication of, as, at all. But Jesus as God, every sin that man committed was against Jesus. Therefore, Jesus as God could look to him and say, I forgive you your sins. Your sins are taken away. So the Pharisees are correct. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forever take our sins from us and forgive us for everything. Because, again, they were directed towards him. And so Jesus, um, the Pharisees are correct. It's, it's Jesus demonstrating that he is God by forgiving their sins. Verses 22 through 25. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Can you imagine the, 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 the man who was formerly paralyzed? How he must have felt? Two miracles. The first miracle, God forgave him his sins, not holding his sins against him, taking them away from him. The relief in his heart about that. But now Jesus says, get up. Get up. Take your mat and go home. And he gets up. And the, the mat that carried him in, he's able to carry out. By the way, this probably was a relief to his friends. They, they may have been a little bit disappointed. You know, they make all this effort and, and they, they lower Jesus down. When they hear Jesus say, friend, your sins are forgiven, they're probably thinking, what? <laughs> um, Jesus, it's obvious we came here for a physical healing. But Jesus then does that. Take your mat and go home. And the friends are like, we don't have to pull him back up here and take him home. He can leave under his own power. But it's interesting. Jesus asked the Pharisees, his opponents, a good question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat and walk? Theologians have been working on that question for 2,000 years. What do you think? What was it easier for Jesus to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? I've given this a lot of thought. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why is that easier to say? Because there's no way to validate it, is there? Right? The paralytic knew sins forgiven by God, and Jesus knew, but no one else would know. So it would be easy to say that, it would be harder to say, uh, pick up your mat and go home. Now, Jesus, again, he wanted to demonstrate to them, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins as God, because that's who I am. Therefore, pick up your mat and go home. But I have another question. It's not as good as Jesus' question, but I think it's, a, it's still a good question. Not which is easier to say, I forgive you, or pick up your mat, but what was harder to do? Was it harder for Jesus to say, I forgive you? Or was it harder for Jesus to say, pick up your mat and go home? And the biblical answer is, it was harder for Jesus to say, I forgive you, than to take up your mat and go home. 
Why do I say this? We sometimes forget that, that forgiveness costs a lot. When we sin, it's, it's, it, there's a price. Our sins are very expensive. It was hard for Jesus to earn our forgiveness at the cross. I think of the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his death. Jesus is already in agony. He's so stressed out about having to pay for our sins, he's sweating blood. He prays three times. The first prayer is, Father, is there any other way besides this cup of your wrath against sin? If there's another way, give me that way, not this way. But not my will, but your will be done. And God the Father's answer was, no other way, Jesus. This difficult road, this difficult way, the cross, bearing all of humanity's sins, is the only way to save mankind. So it was more difficult for Jesus to tell us, you are forgiven. But you know what? Jesus considered the paralyzed man worth it. He also considered you and me worth it. That's our final point this morning. Jesus knew the payment for our sins would cost him everything, but he considered us worth it. Let me illustrate it this way. And for those of you who have been here a while, you've heard this illustration before, but it's the best one I can think of. One of the most expensive cars in the world to buy today is a Bentley. Uh, if you were to buy a Bentley, it would cost you about $225,000. Anyone here have a Bentley? Just asking. No. Um, but say that, say that you know somebody. One of your closest friends owns a Bentley. And that, that car is, is your friend's pride and joy. And, and, and it's always clean, and, and, and the chrome is shined. And, and you, know, you can tell he, he really loves his car. And, and what if your friend called you up very angry and, and, and said to you, you know what happened last night? Someone keyed my Bentley. From bumper to bumper, there is a key scratch across my car. Whoever did this is going to pay. I have security cameras. I've already called the police. There's going to be an investigation. Whoever has done this will have to pay the price and go to jail and pay for this car. So just say that happened. Now, what if when the police investigate and they look at the videotape, it was discovered that your friend's three-year-old granddaughter was the one who keyed his car? How would that change things? Would he carry out full justice, have her arrested, she must pay. Again, if he has any compassion, of course not. Having said that, the car still needs to be fixed, does it not? Who's going to have to pay to fix that car? And the answer is your friend. When Jesus says, I forgive you, to the paralytic, when Jesus says, I forgive you, everyone in this room, including myself, We have to realize there was a cost behind those words. Jesus paid the highest price ever. Why? Because he considered us worth it, even though we didn't deserve it. He wants us in heaven with him. He's willing to pay the highest price, and Jesus says, I forgive you. My friends, that is forgiveness like none other. One final verse in our our text. We're told this in verse 26. 
Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. That would be a day they would never forget, the day of of healing this man, but also the lesson on forgiveness. My friends, as we sit at the feet of Jesus through his word, this has been an incredible day. Has it not? Jesus healing the paralytic. It's been an amazing day. Forgiveness like none other, and that forgiveness is for you and me as well. Amen. May the true peace of God, which surpasses our understanding here, may it keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus as our Messiah, as our Lord. Amen.